Good morning. As always, it's a privilege to be with you. Um, I know Sarah and I have been gone for quite a few weeks over the past few, and Brian said last Sunday, he said, people are going to think you only come back when you're preaching. So that's not the case. We'll be back. We're headed to Iowa again, um, but we will be back for basically all of the, the spring. So it's great to be with you. Um, our text this morning is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. If you want to turn there, and then let us open in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you um, for your love, for your kindness. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Father, that you would be at work in our midst this morning, Lord. We pray that you would spur us on to Christian maturity in the year 2018. Lord, we pray uh, for growth and holiness. We pray, Lord, that we would grow a deeper and deeper and deeper understanding and appreciation of your love, Lord, and that the experience of that would just overflow in the fruit of righteousness as we strive to live for your name's sake. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning is December 31st. And what a good morning it is, right? Because we are on not just the eve of a new year, but we are on the eve of a blank slate. You see, tomorrow everything starts over. 2017 is erased forever. I will be magically transformed from a pumpkin into something, well, better anyway. Every bad habit that I have will be magically expunged with just a mere resolution. And in 2018, I have resolved to have good financial sensibility, an addiction to the gym, and a deep-seated craving for kale chips. That's my hope. And with the stroke of midnight, everything will be wiped clean, and I will be changed. All of my resolutions will be granted. It's the New Year's miracle, right? Obviously, I'm joking. But how different would life be if all of our problems just simply consisted in the day and the year? But, sadly for us, neither the stroke of the clock nor the changing of the calendar have the, the ability to change us. They don't change our desires. And now, I personally don't think that New Year's is a good time for resolution. It's not a good time to, to be resolved to, to do things. But rather, I think that the New Year's is a, is a good time for us to remember and to reflect in Psalm 106, the author, reflecting on the history of Israel, writes this, Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. The great issue for the Israelites as they rebelled at the Red Sea was that they did not remember the steadfast love of the Lord and that they did not consider His wondrous works. You see, the Lord had just freed them from 400 years of bondage. The Lord had redeemed them, ransomed them from the mightiest nation on earth. And over and over, Psalm 106 points to the forgetfulness of the Israelites and how their forgetfulness leads them into rebellion and iniquity. Forgetfulness leads to sin. Remembrance leads to growth in grace, growth in Christian maturity. 
Psalm 90, verse 12, the verse on the, the front of our bulletin, has been one of my favorites for a long time. And this verse commends reflection, even as Vince prayed this morning. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, my prayerful paraphrase of this is, Lord, show me how fleeting and temporary my life is so that I may value properly the things that matter. We were formed from the dust of the earth, and to the dust of the earth we shall return. Our days, every one of them, are fixed in the mind of God, and He knows the exact number of them. Will He give us another 70 years, or will He give us another 70 minutes? Only He knows. But numbering our days, reflecting on the shortness and the brevity of life, teaches us and it helps us to put everything in its proper place, in its proper context. A short little poem written by C.T. Studd captures this point well. He wrote, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Life is short. Eternity is long. And from this vantage, I want to approach our text this morning, which is Paul's second prayer to the Ephesians, in, to the, his second prayer in the book of Ephesians for the Ephesian church. Now, prayer is, is a very interesting thing. You see, it's, it's a very intimate thing, and it is our communication to God. And I think that our prayer life is in many ways a reflection of our relationship with God. And we're going to talk more about that later. But as we approach Paul's prayer, we want to look for how his prayer fits into the letter of Ephesians. But also we want to see what does Paul's prayer say about Paul's priorities and Paul's values. See, Paul was a man wholly devoted to Christ, which meant that Paul was wholly devoted to the growth and maturity of the church. To the Colossians, Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul's driving ministerial motivation is that Christ would be honored through the growing maturity of the church. And I want Paul's priorities to be before us this morning. Because this can be an opportunity for us to reflect on our own priorities. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would embody Christian maturity, but Paul's prayer to the Ephesians is also an embodiment of Christian maturity. As Paul himself, a mature Christian, is praying for the Ephesians to grow in maturity. And growth in maturity looks like growth in holiness and love. And that's the first thing that we see in Paul's prayer for growth. Therefore, the, the first thing that we see in Paul's prayer for growth, and therefore, the first aspect, I think, of the mature Christian life is that it is grounded in sound doctrine. 
Paul begins his prayer in verses 14 and 15. Look with me there. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul begins by grounding his prayer in what has come before. But the question for us is always, how far before, right? And so if you put your finger in chapter 3 and you start working back verse by verse by verse, eventually you come to chapter 3, verse 1. There the Apostle Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ, on, your, on behalf of you Gentiles, point break. Then in verse 2, Paul goes off on a tangent, sort of demonstrating the nature of his ministry to the Gentiles, which continues through verse 13. But this petitionary false start in verse 1 signals for us where to look for the reason that Paul is praying in in that which came before, namely chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2 are filled with Paul's exaltation in the glorious riches of God's inestimable glory in the redemption of man. Paul begins Ephesians with a long word of praise to God as he unfolds the glorious wonder of God's electing love and redemptive grace in the history of salvation. This whole plan of redemption serves to reveal to us the vastness of God's imagination as He has planned the whole of this from the very beginning of it. Chapter 2 then narrows the focus from this grand vision of God's plan from start to finish. It narrows the focus to a more sort of human timeline or from our beginning, which Paul says is death. Paul writes in chapter 2, in chapter 2 verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were all born dead. Living, breathing corpses. We were living and breathing physically, but spiritually we were following our father Adam. We were born under the dominion of sin and death, and we were enslaved to the principalities and the power of the air. Paul then proclaims in verse 4 the glorious end of this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. This life-giving act brings individuals into a relationship with God and into the body of Christ. Paul then, at the the rest of chapter 2, gives some explanation about the body that God is forming through the work of Jesus Christ. He is bringing Jews and Gentiles together into one new man. That means that nationality and class no longer have any meaning for us, but rather being forgiven of your trespasses through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. Paul concludes chapter 2 with this profound statement on the church. He says, starting in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Hear Paul's wonder in this section. From before the foundation of the world, God has been at work. And now we see him constructing his temple, not with bricks and mortar, but with living stones, with human beings. And we, brothers and sisters, get to participate in that. 
This plan that God began before the foundation of the world has enacted and is continuing to work. We are participants with him. And that reality drives Paul to his knees. He writes, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that is what good theology does. Good theology drives you to your knees in prayer because it points you to your utter dependence on God and it points you to His glorious majesty. Paul points in verse 15 with this as well. Every family, indeed every person receives their name, that is, their existence from God. No one exists apart from God's will. No one exists on their own. Every single human being owes the entirety of their existence to the sovereign speech of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that he, that is Jesus, upholds the universe with his powerful word. Every atom that comprises your body is being held together right now by the sovereign speech of our loving creator. If he stops speaking, we stop being What level of dependence is that? If that's true, what do you have in your life that you can take glory for, that you can claim any credit for at all? We are entirely, utterly, ontologically dependent on God. And that is the conviction behind this prayer. And I believe that that is the conviction behind genuine prayer. There is nothing that we are able to shrug God off and say, don't worry about it. I got this. You just, you stay there. I'm good. There's nothing that we can do that. And think for a minute, if prayer is a reflection of our relationship with God, what does your prayer life say about your view of God? We may not verbalize, Lord, I I don't need you. We may not verbalize that, but what do we verbalize? Do we verbalize, Lord, I really need good health, good food, a good car, and a good job? Do we, does our prayer life reflect me, 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 stuff, stuff, stuff? Or does our prayer life reflect open, intimate communication between you and a loving Father on whom you are dependent for everything? Prayerlessness, too, I believe, says something about our relationship with God. Namely, it is a profession of egotistical self-reliance. Paul is a man who has been gripped by the Lord Jesus, and he is a man who is actively seeking to learn and grow in his understanding of God. Paul is a man who strives to live in accordance with what he knows and with what he believes to be true. And sound doctrine, that is, truly knowing God, humbles us. It drives us to our knees in confession to our Heavenly Father as we petition Him and give thanks to Him for absolutely everything that we have. But don't just throw away the fact that Paul is praying to the Father. One of the jewels in the crown of salvation is the wonder of adoption. That we, who were enemies of God, utterly opposed to His rule, would be made His children and co-heirs with His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. The fact that Paul addresses God as Father is not a sort of throwaway, nor is it a given, but is a demonstration of the relationship to whom the one that we pray As we approach God, we are not approaching an angry tyrant. We we are not approaching uh, an angry taskmaster, someone who is seeking to work us woe and harm. But we are approaching our, our Heavenly Father, 
But though we whose sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ, we are under the dominion of our Heavenly Father. And we can rest assured that He hears our prayers through Jesus. We can be assured that He is working all things together for our good and for His glory. Brothers and sisters, we can trust Him. He may not answer all of our prayers exactly as we would like Him to, but we can have confidence that He will answer our prayers in the kindest, most loving way possible. And now this is just sort of scratching the surface of the well of doctrine that the Apostle Paul is drawing from. But it points us to the fact that mature Christianity is not divorced from sound doctrine, but it flows from sound doctrine. And Paul then makes his first petition regarding the Ephesians' maturity, that they would grow in holiness. This growth, like everything else, is dependent upon the sovereign work of God. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul begins his petition by appealing to the riches of God's glory. But don't just jump over that. It's, it's easy as we, as we read this to think, man, I've heard that phrase a thousand times, and just to jump over it. Don't do that. Paul appeals to the riches of God's glory. To put this another way, the sum total of the worth of God's fullness. This demands meditation, and even my best attempt here is going to fall remarkably short. But think about this. How valuable is God? That question might seem ridiculous because it's treating God as a sort of commodity to be bartered. But think about this. How valuable is God? If we were to put this in in human terms, how much gold is the one who can create gold out of nothing worth? How much land could you get for the one who created the heavens and the earth? Or how much Bitcoin could you get for someone whose intelligence makes our grandest supercomputer look like a 1980s Walkman? The throne of God is so glorious that it made Isaiah pronounce a curse of death upon himself with one vision of it. God is supremely glorious. He is supremely valuable and he is infinite in power and glory. And Paul is praying that we would be strengthened in accordance with those riches. Think about the resources being marshaled behind your growth in holiness. Brothers and sisters, let our reflection on God's resourcing our war against sin encourage us in the fight. We have not been given puny, pathetic implements for battle, but we have been armed by the God of the universe from the storehouse of His armory. And as we wage war in the flesh and the sin that is still in our lives, the Lord God Himself is fighting alongside us to put these things to death. Paul knows that this is our only hope in the fight. Without the work of God being exerted on our behalf, we would lose every single skirmish and we would eventually lose the war. But our hope is not based on willpower and it is not based on resolution. It is based on our reliance on the sovereign work of God as He works and fights with us and behind us. And notice Paul here is not just praying for mere external obedience, right? 
He's not praying for a church full of people with a a sort of happy facade or this general feeling of niceness, but are internally, they're really vipers. No, this prayer is that our very nature, that our very character would be changed by the work and the power of God. That is where what Paul is praying for, for strengthening with power through his spirit, that is God's spirit, in the inner man. Now, this is not the first time that Paul has alluded to the power of God. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Paul prays for the Ephesians the first time. In that prayer, Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul alludes to this same power in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. There Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The power that Paul is referring to is not simply a force or an energy. It's, It's not the power of dynamite. This power is the power of the resurrection. It is the act of a new creation. It is the Spirit working in our hearts to bring life out of death, to bring fruitfulness and vitality to limbs that were barren and decaying. Paul is praying that we would grow in holiness beginning with the inner man. The inner man here is our heart or the seat of our thoughts, the seat of our emotions and our desires, our will. And this is where life starts. Think back about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. As the Spirit works, He produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How many of these are primarily external actions? They will result in external actions. They will result in external change. But the beginning of each of these is in the heart. It's internal. Love is not simply showing kindness to someone or doing good deeds. But love is a deep-seated desire to do good for someone else. That's what love is. Joy is not merely having a smile on your face. But joy is a deep, resting, trusting contentment that gives birth to a satisfied countenance of life. That's what joy is. The Christian life begins when God gives you a new heart and a new spirit. When the new creation is begun in your soul and you begin to see the fruits of that new creation as it's exercised on your thought and your will and your patterns of life. And then you start to see the external fruit. But Paul goes one step further as he highlights the purpose. Look with me at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That is real presence and real communion with Christ throughout the life of the Christian. That's the result of this strengthening. This verse, like the last, is picking up another theme from Paul's first prayer. As Paul concludes his first prayer in chapter 1, he delights in God's placing Christ over all things. He says there in verses 22 and 23, And he, that is God, put all things under his, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In these verses, Paul quotes Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is David's reflection on the creation of the world. 
And David is rejoicing in the Lord's creation of things like stars and planets and just the glory and the majesty. But the thing that floors David in the middle of this psalm is that God would create man and put him over all of it. That he would give man dominion over all the earth and that he would put all things under his feet. Paul then picks up this idea of all things being under his feet, which was under Adam's feet. And he quotes this in regards to Christ. That all things have been placed now under Christ's feet. Think about this for a minute. You see, the first Adam was placed in a garden. He dwelt in the Garden of Eden and he was given dominion. But Adam disobeyed, didn't he? He disobeyed God's word and through Adam, the whole world was brought under the dominion of sin and death, including Adam himself. Jesus Christ, however, the the last and the true and greater Adam destroyed sin and death through the cross. And Jesus Christ is now dwelling in the hearts of his people, extending his dominion. That is the new creation through individual Christians, but also corporately through his body, the church. The new creation, the dominion and kingdom of Christ is being extended as more and more people are brought into faith union with Jesus. But the new creation is also being extended as individual Christians are seeing sanctification, growth in holiness. As they're seeing the fruit of this new creation, the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of righteousness produced in obedience to Jesus's word. And this brings about glorious restoration, glorious reconciliation. I don't know how many times I've thought, man, it would be amazing to think or to see just just a minute of what life was like in the Garden of Eden. But we have a picture of it, don't we? When we're walking in step with the Spirit, when, when we're evidencing the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, when there's restoration, when we're living in the peace of God, when there's shalom, We have a taste of the garden, but even better than that, we have a taste of the new creation, the kingdom under the dominion, the reign and lordship of Jesus Christ. Upon the initial act of saving faith and repentance, Christ took up residence in our hearts. But as we grow in holiness and cultivate more and more this fruit in our lives, the presence and influence and dominion of Jesus becomes stronger and stronger. And at this point, it should be obvious to us why we need the power of God and why we need to be on our knees in prayer before God for help in this, right? Because we are weak and we are feeble. We just celebrated Christmas, and Christmas is always wonderful. But this year was particularly wonderful as we were in Connecticut celebrating with Sarah's family. And her brother Seth has a a seven-month-old daughter, he and his wife. Renee is is beautiful, and she is very funny. And as we were celebrating Christmas, she was getting these packages that were wrapped in wonderful paper. But the the amazing part was what was in these boxes, right? It was these fascinating toys, all of these Fisher-Price and nice outfits. Renee would sit up. She would grab a box. She would frantically claw, claw at the wrapping paper. And as soon as she would get a small tear, she would take as much of the wrapping paper as she could, and she would frantically stuff it in her mouth, just trying to eat as much wrapping paper as she could. And as soon as Dad was able to sort of pull it out of her mouth and get all the bits out, Renee would grab the box and try and stuff that in her mouth as much as she could fit. 
she apparently loves the taste and the texture of, of wrapping paper more than she loves the toys that this wrapping paper concealed. She couldn't have cared less about what was in the box. What she wanted was to eat the box. And as I was laughing and sitting and watching this take place, as, as she is just demonstrating this over and over and over again, I was struck at how often my life reflects that reality. How often are the gifts and promises of God standing just before me and I would rather chew on something unsavory? How often is the goodness of God seen in something like marriage or owning a car or owning a house and all I can do is complain about not getting my way or how bad the other drivers on the road are? We need to be strengthened in the inner man because we live in a world that is hostile to faithful Christianity. And I'm not talking necessarily about persecution. Yes, we face that. But we Americans have a different sort of struggle. You see, compared to the rest of the world, we live in a sort of Disneyland, don't we? Things like binge-watching Netflix or wasting $100 on the app store, they weren't struggles for the Apostle Paul, and they aren't for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. There's so many temptations in America to comfort and to ease of life that are just simply wrapping paper. They're, they're, they're as worthless as these boxes that Renee was trying to chew on, and she was missing the fact that there's this wonderful toy if she would just get past the box. Let us not be lulled to sleep by self-justification, but let us genuinely reflect. What are areas over, over the last year that we can give God praise for as we have witnessed growth? Where has God given us victory in the Christian life? Where has He exerted His power in us? But likewise, what areas of our life are, are yet like wrapping paper? What areas of our life need to be discarded so that we can grasp the true gifts and the true promises of God, which are namely Himself, that we would receive the fullness of Him? What areas of our life does sin continue to pop up and pop up and pop up that, that Paul would say that we need to be on our knees praying for? You see, Paul knew our weakness because Paul knew his own weakness. And in maturity, Paul got on his knees and he begged God to strengthen the Ephesians. Because with the fullness of God behind us, we can be encouraged and we can take courage and continue to fight the good fight. Christian maturity is growing in holiness and that is dependent on God's working in us. And thirdly, we see in Paul's prayer a demonstration that Christian maturity is saturated, saturated with the surpassing love of Christ. I don't think I could express this any better than the songs that we've had this morning, but let me try. Paul writes in verse, the end of verse 17 through verse 19, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, being rooted and grounded in love. What Paul has in view here is not our loving God or our loving each other, but rather God's loving us. 
This has been Paul's theme beginning in chapter 1 where Paul overviews the entirety of salvation history from election to redemption to us receiving our inheritance in Christ and the foundation that we were predestined as sons through adoption is all bound up. It's all done in love. Before we had done anything good or bad, God had set His love upon us, and that is the grounding of our election. In chapter 2 then, Paul highlights our utterly wretched state apart from Christ. How much worse can you say than you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, and Satan was your leader? How much worse does it get than that? But then in verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great Love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, the entirety of your Christian walk is undergirded and permeated by the the love of God in Jesus Christ. And here Paul uses two metaphors to demonstrate this. Rooted and grounded. That's an agricultural metaphor and a construction metaphor. First, the root system of a plant provides several things for the plant. But most importantly, the root system provides nutrients, a a lot of nutrients, and it provides a sort of structure for the plant so that it can stand and grow tall. The deeper the roots, the more sturdy and stable the plant But not only that, if you see a a beautiful oak tree that's planted in really bad soil, it doesn't matter how deep or wide the roots are spread, a gust of wind can blow it over. And so it's also dependent upon the quality of the soil on which the tree is planted. And similarly, the foundation of a building gives the building its ballast and anchor point so that it can hold firm for year after year. But that, again, is dependent upon the soil. The best foundation builder, even if if he has to build on sand or rock, will not build on organic matter because as that organic matter continues to decay, the foundation is going to become unsteady. So it's dependent upon the soil. And the soil that Paul is pointing us to as Christians here is that we are rooted and grounded in the love of God. It's the love of God that gives us ballast. It's the love of God from which we draw nutrition and stability as Christians. God's love ought to be reflected in our speech. It ought to be reflected in the way that we carry ourselves. It ought to be be the thing that colors the structure of our lives, our thoughts, our desires. It's the love of God that ought to be shaping us and molding us into the image of Christ who was the beloved of God. Being rooted and grounded in the love of God must become instrumental to who we are and what we think and do. From this rootedness then, Paul prays that the Ephesians would grow deeper and deeper and deeper. So just simply being rooted is not enough, but we must be sinking our roots down deep. We must be growing in this. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul prays that God will give the Ephesians strength to comprehend the love of God. Let that sink in for just a minute. 
Paul prays that God will give the Ephesians strength to comprehend the love of God. Think about the fact that Christ's love is so vast, it's so immeasurably great, that it takes an act of God for us to begin to understand it. For us to begin to comprehend it. And how often do we treat the love of God in this sort of trite or cavalier manner? It's really easy for me to think, you know, God loves me, God loves you, John 3.16, right? As though God's love is as flippant, as flippant and trivial as my love, which vacillates between loving God and loving Starbucks and loving my wife and loving my car. But it's not so with the love of God, is it? God's love is deeper than we can ever dig. God's love is further than we can ever search. It's higher than we can ever fly. Simply, Christ's love is so vast that we cannot get above it. We cannot get below it. We cannot get around it. We cannot get outside of it. It is the atmosphere in which we live. For those who are in Christ, God's love pervades every inch of your existence. Every inch inch. Our love is often temporary. It's often works-based. But God's love for us began before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad. Our love is usually given to objects which are lovely, but God's love was extended to us even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Even while we were enemies, His love was extended to us in Christ Jesus Our love is often perverted and pervaded by selfish desires and selfish motivations. But God's love is so vast that He takes His enemies and adopts them into His family and makes them co-heirs with His true Son. This sort of love ought to have us standing here saying, that's impossible. How can that be? Our love is faithless in pursuit. If you think about about someone that you've tried to love and minister to and they've rejected it over and over and over and over for year after year after year after year, love eventually runs cold, at least mine does. But God's love is faithful to restore, it's faithful to discipline His children, those who have professed Christ but have backslidden and walked away from His presence. The Lord's love pursues them if they are truly His children. The extent of God's love is vast. It's so vast, in fact, that the Apostle Paul continues his prayer in verse 19. That the Lord may strengthen you to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Christ's love is so vast that Paul says it surpasses our knowing. The the song we sang this morning, the love of God, I love the, the final verse of that. That talks, even if the ocean were an inkwell... And every stalk a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. If the sky were our scroll, we could dip and dip and write and write and write until the ocean was dry and the sky was covered, and we would never exhaust the vastness and the riches of God's love for His children in Christ Jesus. Christ's love is so vast it surpasses knowledge, yet Paul prays that we would know it. That's a paradox. 
But in short, Paul's prayer is that we would move beyond just mere apprehension, just merely knowing, that we would move beyond that to the experiential knowledge of God's love, that we would taste and see the goodness of God. This love is seen as we read something like, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. This love is seen as we read something like, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Out of the anguish of His soul He shall see and be satisfied. By His, right, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and He shall bear their iniquities. This love is seen as we behold in the Word of God the broken body of our blessed Savior, the broken, stripped, shamed body of our broken Savior as He hung on a cross bearing the penalty, of the, uh, the penalty of the sins for those who at that point hated Him. That is the love of God as we behold it in the Word of God. Paul's prayer is that this love, the, the knowledge of, of what Christ secured and what Christ sacrificed, this knowledge would move us, that, that it would strengthen and that it would grow within the inner man, that, that we would understand, that we would comprehend something of the vastness of this. And if, if you've read any, anything from church history, you see through the Puritans, you see through a man like R.A. Torrey, as the Lord moves them and demonstrates His love to them as they're searching for Him in His Word. And He moves them to tears. He moves them to do amazing feats because of the love that He has shown them. That's what the Apostle Paul is praying here. Growth in Christian maturity is growing in knowing the love of Christ. It is growing in knowing not our love, not our feeble love for God, but knowing God's love for us. It is grounding our lives in the work that He has done in the gospel that has been proclaimed to us. It is grounding our lives in the work of Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Ephesians to know this more and more and more. He wants them to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And he wants to feel this more and more and more intensely. And wouldn't you love to taste and see the goodness and the glory of God? Wouldn't you relish a, refle a refreshing glimpse of the sweetness of this sacrifice? And that's, that's Paul's prayer. And I think that that's what we need to spend the new year remembering and meditating and reflecting upon. But look with me back verse, at the end of verse 19. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now this expression is, is an expression that the Apostle Paul uses to point to growth and maturity. And you see this if you, if you look over in chapter 4 to verse 13. Um, Paul is talking about the purpose of the church and the ministry of the church. And he says this, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this language of the fullness of God is growth. It is the, the growing into Christian maturity. 
And that's what Paul's prayer here has been grounded in and moving towards, is Paul's desire to see the Ephesian church presented as mature, believing Christians, that they would live a life in light of their dependence on the power of God and their growth in holiness, and that they would live their life being saturated with the love of Christ. That is the mature Christian life. And Paul concludes this prayer pointing to the glory of Christ in verses 20 and 21. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's desire is that Christ would be glorified in the church. This happens as Christians strive to grow in Christian maturity and as the Lord works in their midst to grow them into Christian maturity. And that's Paul's heart. That's Paul's priority. That's Paul's prayer to the, for the Ephesians. And so as we close, I want to begin where, or end where I began, which is not a call to resolution, but it's a call to reflection, a call to remembrance. This love of Christ who gave every ounce of himself for us on the cross. This love needs to be remembered. We, we read this morning Psalm 90.12. But verse, the, Psalm 90.12, if you go two verses later, Psalm 90.14, the, the author prays, To the Lord, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. May we be satisfied this year by the love of Christ. May we be moved to depend upon the Lord and to grow in holiness as we strive to submit every aspect of our life, beginning with the inner man, beginning with our thoughts, with our desires, with our will, as we submit all of that to his dominion through his word. Let us remember and reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ in the year 2018. Please pray with me. Our gracious Lord, we do give you thanks. Lord, how how amazing are these things? It leads us to declare what wondrous love is this, Lord? What is your majesty and your glory that are at work on our behalf, Lord? They are astounding. They are amazing. I pray, Lord, that you would enrapture us, that you would ravish us with a a beautiful glimpse, a beautiful taste of your goodness that has been exercised on our behalf through Jesus Christ. Please be at work in our midst. Lord, I pray that we would find time in the next day or two or three and for the whole next year, Lord, that we would find time to remember and to reflect upon all that you have done. Lord, in all that you desire for us, we pray that you continue to grow us in love, that you continue to grow us in holiness, that we may be presented mature to Jesus Christ on that day when we stand before him face to face. We pray in his name. Amen.